Can someone get that? Where is everybody? Did you all go home? Why would you go home? It's Christmas! Christmas is such a wonderful, not to mention normal time to be at camp. The pond is frozen over for ice skating. And the woods are basically an entire forest of Christmas trees. Christmas is the best time to be at camp. Hello? 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 Who is this? Who is this? <laughs> Whoops! The call was coming from inside my butt. <laughs> Pocket dialed the camp for my cell phone again. I really have to stop doing that, boy. Oh boy, it has been a it's been a long year. Maybe I should uh, maybe I should go home. No more missing kids. No more sad ghost ladies. No more hatchets swung at my face. If there's anyone still here at camp, you're in charge now. Camp director Chris is out. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Feliz Navidad. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the last episode of season one of Bunk 237. Yeah, that's right. We're doing seasons. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Robin. And I'm the other host, Too Yet. Um, and our guest today is our my special friend and Shane's special friend and Robin's special friend, uh, Keith Garcia, who is the artistic director of the C Film Center, the home theater of Denver Film. Um, he is also a filmmaker and who has been working on his decade-long project, um, a drag documentary, The Heels Have Eyes, which is the best name for a drag movie ever. Um, and we're, I think he's looking for, hoping for a release in 2021. That's the hope. <laughs> but I have that hope every year for the last few years, so, you know. <laughs> well, we're very excited to have you, Keith, um, especially because I know that you uh, have a lot to say about this movie. It's the end of the year. It's Christmas time. We're talking about Black Christmas, do obviously. You, do you guys have your cocoa? You have your cocoa and your cookies <laughs> next to you. I have sparkling water. Yeah, it's in a definitely mug. not actually September and a hundred degrees right now. No, um, we, we left that long behind. <laughs> um, of course, this is the original Black Christmas from 1974, the uh, classic slasher tale uh, about a sorority that gets terrorized by a killer in the attic. But it's uh, definitely so much more than that. It stars Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey, Andrea Martin, John Saxon, who died earlier this year. And it's a Canadian movie that was directed by Bob Clark, who incidentally also wrote and directed A Christmas Story. So <laughs> he's kind of got a weird fascination with Christmas, I guess. Keith, I mean, I know you have a lot to talk about. I just want to jump in and see, you know, what does this movie mean to you? Why is it such a classic? Yeah, well, <clears throat> first of all, I know people can't see, but in spirit, I wore... Uh, this T-shirt that I got recently—it's a Final Girl T-shirt. So, but I because but because it features Jess on there. That's yeah. fantastic. Uh, I'll so. describe it. It is a black T-shirt oh, yeah. in big letters, <laughs> and it says <laughs> uh, says in the style of, of Final Girl T-shirts: Sally, Jess, Lori, Nancy, Sydney, and I think the inclusion of Jess is 
excellent in that. And I think such a subtle nod for like deep dive horror fans. Real horror fans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. I was trying to be like nice. I was like, for, yeah, for true fucking horror fans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so Black Christmas, um, this movie came to me very late. I was definitely a, I'm old, so I'm, uh, I just turned 43, I was born in 77, to do the math, um, so as a, as a baby, I was picking up, uh, the golden age of slasher movies on television, or HBO eventually, in my, like, formative five, six years old <laughs> period, <laughs> um, and Black Christmas had not made it into that kind of zone, like cable television yeah. or public TV. Um, it was more of a... I remember seeing that very um, very famous poster image, or at least on the VHS box, when I would go to the, the, to the video store, of a uh, character whose head is wrapped in plastic, which is how she passed away. Mm-hmm. We want no spoilers. Oh, we'll, we spoil. Oh, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the first person to die, um, who's suffocated in a plastic bag. But the poster said, if this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Um, <laughs> That's so good. And as a kid, I would see that and I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that seems terrifying. So um, not that I avoided it. And the video box also didn't promise like a masked killer or like any of those things that me at that age was really like into right. I was diving into Jason and Michael Myers and eventually Freddy and and any other like mass killer that was roaming around in the slasher movies of that little that little window in the early 80s but um it wasn't until I was in Austin in 2002 that uh, there's a really great video store that's still there. Actually, no, I should say that actually just closed. <laughs> During oh, our no. COVID times, RIP, everything, fun. Uh, Vulcan Video, a really fantastic place out there. But I went in looking and I was like, you know, I just want a really good horror film. And the guy behind the desk was like, oh, well, you've seen Black Christmas, obviously. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I have. <laughs> but... And then I was like, no, never mind, I haven't. What is it? <laughs> or I know what it is, but like, should I watch it? He's like, oh, absolutely. And if you call yourself any kind of film fan or horror film fan, it needs to be part of everything. So I was like, all right, I will need to be a completionist. I need to earn my degree officially. So I uh, rented it, took it home to my little apartment. And even though I had like two windows in this apartment and I was on the like the second floor, and the windows were super tiny, like just kitchen windows um, that actually only slid halfway open. So no human being was going to get in. <laughs> mm-hmm. I put like a stick or a ruler or something in the window to keep it from opening because I was so freaked out after watching Black Christmas for the first time. And to have seen it at that, you know, years later after every horror film that I felt I saw um, that never really got to me. You know, I appreciated and loved horror and the genre and slasher films, but there was something so pure and evil about Black Christmas that just rattled me. And 
it's something too that every time I rewatch it, and I, I try to start a tradition of a yearly Christmas time screening of Black Christmas, and I always watch it. I don't just turn it on and then just walk out. Um, yeah, uh, I would take a note here that I, I, um, I am keenly aware of Black Christmas because of you, Keith. Um, you know, we, we, have a, we have a long history. I, I met Keith when I was, I think, 19, probably. So we is a I wee was, baby. <laughs> I was uh, working, we were working at the Mayan Theater in Denver, Colorado. Um, and then we both transitioned at different times over to the uh, Denver Film Center. And you were always this fantastic programmer. And I think on top of so many cult movies, uh, in general, from when you were doing the midnight movies, I remember Black Christmas uh, every every season when it would come on, um, and it was and it is. I credit you one hundred percent with introducing me to this movie. Well, I like to hear that, and you're welcome. You know, I'll credit I'll credit Keith too because as aware as I was of Black Christmas, I didn't watch it for the first time until yesterday so <laughs> for well, this podcast we, there we go so, well, thank you keith <laughs> well and every time every time i do screen it there's always half of the audience is not has never seen it it's usually a person brings them that's like you have to watch this movie so that always warms my heart that it's not always and i appreciate an audience full of people who've seen it a million times and love it but it's getting to the new people that is always, like, that's my goal. That's why always th- my goal in anything. Uh, why do you think Black Christmas has gone so, I mean, I, I don't know, is under the radar the right word, phrase for it? Because I think it has a strong following, but I don't think that, like, as you know, for, for the time that it came out, um, mm. for the year that it came out, and for how much it helped set up so much, so much of the slasher genre, or at least kind of, like, was a precursor to so many other things, why is it after like three decades now it's still finding new audiences or why do you think it hasn't been talked about as much as like the Friday the 13th and the Nightmare on Elm Street slashers? Um, Because it's old and because it's quiet and because it it doesn't adhere to the formula as much as it was actually the original formula. This is... Yeah. uh, This is... I think too... What you'd mentioned earlier is like the the killer is faceless. Mm-hmm. He's not a Michael Myers. There's no there are no T-shirts with his face on it because there yeah. could, there can't be. He's not revealed. You know, you see his eyeball once. And yeah. That's it. Exactly. Um, and it's in the same way where we kind of as as the years go on and this kind of gap sort of continues to widen. Like that same year was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that's notable for having Leatherface, who, of course, just spawned a franchise. But Black Christmas did not spawn any kind of franchise. And an interesting fun fact is that uh, technically it did spawn a franchise in inspiration. Um, there was a, a young filmmaker that was a huge fan of Black Christmas upon its release and began a... Uh, a, a communicative artistic relationship with Bob Clark um, to potentially explore a sequel of some sort um, that never came to be with Bob Clark or necessarily get, not his blessing, but like I think Bob Clark just wasn't interested in carrying, in, in the idea of a sequel. In 1974, what was a sequel? Nothing really. <laughs> um, but that young director was John Carpenter, and many people feel that Halloween 
was a, a direct inspiration uh, from Black Christmas and sort of taking the notion of a quiet, faceless killer and also the holiday theme and how a holiday can really, that the mood of a holiday can really set up terror yeah. when it's not supposed to. That when you're in a situation that is about something else, why death and murder can really alter everything in it. Um, and the fact, too, that so much of how Halloween plays, which in Halloween gets so much credit for for truly establishing the slasher genre as we know it, but when you go back to 1974's Black Christmas, you see where all that actually originated. Um, yeah. And more importantly, too, Bob Clark had no idea what he was doing in regards to that. There was no thought to... I'm going to set up a formula that's going to work forever. <laughs> right. I mean, so much of slasher movies, and, and mostly horror for that, for that matter, um, are based on urban myth and urban legend. And right. the, the babysitter and the calls coming from inside the house is, goes back to the 50s. Um, that was an urban myth that was rolling around to scare, uh, scare young, young co-ed babysitters from, from, from letting boys over. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I remember hearing that story as mm-hmm. as a kid, like, you know, under the covers, telling ghost stories to each other. I definitely heard that one. And I think Black Christmas is the first movie to, like, really, you know, use that directly. But then I think When a Stranger Calls was, like, mm-hmm. a year or two later. Yeah, just a couple of years after that, which that was the direct plot line of When a Stranger Calls was, yeah. you know, that one. and. You know, this notion, too, of, like, when you really look at the setup of Black Christmas, where you're like, okay, we have a deranged killer on the loose, we have a sorority house um, that is slowly, conveniently emptying of most people and leaving behind a handful of potential um, victims. Um, This is also true, like, red herring territory uh, for a slasher movie. Though, which, of course, Red Herrings, we got to go back to, like, Agatha Christie as, like, the original right, inspiration right. of creating, like, a, who is it? It could be this person. It could be this person. It could be this person. We don't know who it is until the very end. Um, and we still don't. <laughs> and we still don't. <laughs> um, I thought they did that so well, though. I oh, absolutely. Um, loved that. With yeah. Jess at the end, and, you know, she clearly thinks that, that Peter is actually the guy or she doesn't know, you know, I, she just knows that she's afraid of him. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Like the big bad in this movie was just the unknown fear of like a killer in the house. And, you know, I've sort of like read and sort of listened to other podcasts where, uh, I think that there's, you know, two camps. People either really love that. You don't know who the killer is and people who are super annoyed that there's no resolution at the end, you know? Yeah. And um, that, that, that definitely points a lot to, I guess, audiences in general, and maybe why this also was not, has yeah. not been so up there, is because you don't walk away going like, oh, and then that killer Jason is such a, like, I like Jason, I like Freddy, I like Leatherface. <laughs> right, like, yeah, yeah. there's people, you're like, this entity, this crazed lunatic... Which uh, was one of the things, too, that made, and I'm just going to put it right out here. For I don't want to spend much time talking about the monstrosities of remakes of Black Christmas that have come out in the last uh, <laughs> yeah, few years. Yeah. But 
that's what the first remake of Black Christmas did was they actually gave a face trying to create a movie monster out of the killer. Even going so far as to name them Billy, which is just like, no, 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 no. The, oh, yeah. the whole right. Billy used in, in Black Christmas is the weird rambling of whatever's going yeah. on in that killer's mind when he says, the, like, don't tell him what we did, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> and to to just take it in that other direction and make it so cheap and so like go for it. that was a cash grab. Yeah. That remake was absolutely a yeah. cash grab. Um and yeah. I don't even know what they were trying to grab with the new remake that came out last year. <laughs> which I, d- I haven't seen either of them. Which don't. Please don't. <laughs> like, I I I found the killer in this movie so scary there's something like so elemental and just like unpredictable and terrifying about this guy who's like he's like crying as he's rocking her in the chair like he's so disturbed and those like obscene (laughs) those obscene phone calls that sound like five different people at once yeah Yeah. totally i think as a woman that lives alone like this plays directly into my worst fears you know, like I lock, like Keith, you were saying how you like put the uh, the board in the window to keep it closed. Like I lock my windows at night in my second story apartment, like <laughs> yeah. just in case there's like a creeper with a grappling hook, you mm-hmm. know, like, and I don't know. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> like with the well, fear of that even- is like, I feel so justified by like news stories and my own encounters with men and just being in the world but also it makes me feel fucking unhinged and irrational (laughs) and i think that this movie was like touched on those things of like real fears but also real fears that make you sound fucking insane it's also like i don't know if if this was the intention but keeping him faceless and keeping his identity anonymous means that he could be anyone. Yeah. He could be any man. Yeah. And it's exactly. sort of like, of course it could, because men are, <laughs> men are violent think, and terrible. Yeah. And like, well, and that's such an interesting <laughs> thing to me, looking back all these years, especially, okay, so we'll talk a little bit about the latest remake of Black Christmas, because um, it was written and directed by Sophia Takal, who is uh, a very great you know, female indie director, but there was this slant put on the remake to be very Me Too and very pro-woman and feminist. And all the press I remember hearing about it leading up to was just like, it dogged the original because they were just like, it wasn't feminist at all. It was just like this, this, this normal slasher movie huh. sampling of, of women being picked off. And I was like, excuse me. They were I watching, we weren't watching the same movie. <laughs> I was going to say, I made a note of like a similar thing that, that at the time critics really called it sort of like a derivative, like regular slasher movie. Mm-hmm. And I bet it's because they were all dudes. Exactly. <laughs> well, these women were like amazing. Yeah, every woman, every, I'm sorry, every man in this movie is, ha, gives you reason to doubt them for everything from the, <laughs> yeah. From yeah. The cops in general, which are very... Mm-hmm. I enjoy the, the levity of the Keystone cop aspect in this movie. Like yes. The dumb cops, yeah. the good cop, but then balancing all that. Um, even, like, the boyfriend characters are just kind of like, eh, whatever. <laughs> um, but the one character, that we, male character we have to focus on is Jess's boyfriend, played by Keir Dulea, who is famous yeah. for um, 2001 and a host of other... Um, really great films in the 70s 
But the the whole the fear in that movie also stems from watching Jess's story uh, as she deals with this boyfriend. And most progressively, we have to remember it was 1974. She's discussing getting an abortion. I like yeah. that's and that's not a a a thinly veiled whatever. It's like I'm pregnant. Right. Oh great, what are we gonna do? I don't think I'm gonna keep it. What? Yeah. And then you have the male fantasy aggression of mm-hmm. of we're getting married yeah, oh, yeah. you're, you're taking baby. that away from me and then he goes off the rails and and she straight up says i have hopes and dreams and i don't want this yeah, yeah. the abortion subplot i thought was incredibly interesting especially in the time period this is just a f- two, one to two years after one year <laughs> after roe versus after wade, roe v. wade. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and i thought that was such a strong thing um just to, yeah, to come out so clearly, not beating around the bush about it. Um, there's that scene when uh, Peter and Jess and they're discussing it, and Peter goes like, I'm quitting the observatory and we're getting married. And <laughs> my immediate reaction was like, oh, are we? Are we getting married? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and I could feel that, like, for Jess And I just in love that, that, yeah, that she said, I can't marry you. Like, mm-hmm. I do not want to marry you. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was and a good I don't red hearing. This life. But I also, I know, I felt like, you know, the movie, the sort of murder mystery part of it was pointing us towards Peter, you know, especially when he's, like, slamming down the piano and just, like, yeah. all of his anger and his, like, male rage about the situation coming out. But in the back of my mind, I, like, kind of knew, maybe just from watching, you know, it's never the person you suspect, or maybe it is, but, like, mm-hmm. I I think I knew that it wasn't going to be him as much as the movie was kind of pushing for that. And I, I didn't want it to be him because I thought that was too convenient. I thought that would have made yeah. it too easy. But then it's yeah. so good that it isn't him, but yet we still don't know. Like, it's still just... Someone we had no idea what their story was, other right. than what we could pick up from the fact that they very aggressively murdered. I keep using aggression. <laughs> this is a very toxic male movie because yeah, we yeah. know it's a guy. Like, yeah, absolutely. There's no denying that this this killer is 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 male. Can we make a um, note that it's also a killer that wears flared jeans? Did you always notice yes. that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know very much about him except for like his eye color. And there's that one scene in the beginning where he kind of you see his feet, and I, I immediately thought I was like, oh, it's the '70s. He's wearing flare jeans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, back to your point, to yet though, like I think it, I think that it was pretty clear that it wasn't Peter, and it was obviously clear the entire time that he was in the house. And still, when the police officer finally says he's in the, you know, the call is coming from inside the house, I was like, my heart dropped. <laughs> I was like, I know this information. I've known this information for an hour and a half. Yeah. But there, there's, there's, and this is, I think, this is one of the great, like, I, I rewatched this scene a lot. And I recently started, I think I watched just this last Christmas, I, I watched it at a friend's house and filmed us watching, like, the screen. It's this moment that still always gives me chills, and it is her realization that that's what's happening. But yeah. then the like the eyes going up the stairs to be like, I gotta go get my friends, you know, before this whatever. And then that final little bit where she goes to check in the room and she finds them dead, and then she sees the killer through the door crack, which of course is the worst, like. 
anyone hiding behind a door is like always like that is in I've carried yeah. that into my adult years. <laughs> as, are you, are as, you peeking uh, into door cracks all the time? I'm usually a slammer against the wall, like making sure that no one is there. Like well, that's how she got out. Yeah. Yeah. But that whole sequence where when she hits him with the door and then starts running and then he does his crazy like ah, ah, and chases after her and that she's running down the stairs, the door, she can't get the door open and so she turns to go the other way and he grabs her hair. Oh, yeah, that turning. was terrifying. And you're just like, and, and the, the fact that they still managed to shoot this entire scene and be like, we are not going to show their face. Like that's such a great shot to uh, choreograph of like, okay, you're going to come here, can't get out the door, going to go this way, and then we're still going to manage to get him to grab your hair from the stairs, but we're never going to see their face or anything more discerning than an arm. Like it's, And it's not a tight shot. It's a pretty relatively medium shot, but that they took so much care to be like, we cannot give anything up aside from like, this person and you know they're wearing a sweater we've kind of gathered so that ties back <laughs> right. into peter um as we we get to the the final little bit there there's also that thing that whole the whole time of police and authority not taking the complaints of these girls seriously and the mother of that girl that died in the park yeah where you're just like they've called a million you know like except, except for except trying. for john saxon john saxon will right, always right. be the good like the <laughs> three good, like, th- Three good cops in the world. That is Olivia Benson, <laughs> Olivia Benson, RoboCop, and whoever, whichever cop John Saxon's playing. <laughs> but they're all fictional, so. <laughs> it was so effective, I thought, to see him enter the house. You know he's in the house. You know he's making these phone calls. And then you have the first long phone call where it's just all the women listening as he, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was like eight minutes in that he says, um, what was it? Uh, let me lick your pretty big cunt. <laughs> it was like eight minutes into the movie. And I was like, this is, I think that may be another reason that it didn't get like the airtime in some other movie. Yeah. The language. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I, I think it was before that, that, um, Barb, Margot Kidder's uh, character, yeah. calls her mother a gold-plated whore yep. <laughs> on the phone. Yeah. Do you think that the, the, the sort of the depiction of, of women like Barb, who is like foul mouth, independent, kind of a drunk, like not, not the sort of like, you know, uh, idealized version of like a, a woman in a film. Like, do you think that that also contributed to sort of like why people didn't like it, why some people didn't like it? as much or why it didn't get to be you know because people didn't want to yeah it wasn't like like the set up the character of barb or these like you know independent Mm -hmm. women who all did get she wasn't yeah they weren't laurie you know strode who's just like the sort of upstanding babysitter type she was literally there's also uh, feeding a kid champagne (laughs) there's also a really interesting thing and it was funny watching i don't know if any of you watched the the miniseries uh miss america which was about Mm-mm. the, basically it was the expansion of like women's rights, like women's lib that Gloria Steinem was really behind. That started in like 1969, but was like roaring through the 70s. And the fact too that Black Christmas is about college girls versus like Halloween about yeah. high school girls. Like I feel like generationally there was a divide that if you're in college as a woman, 
that like you're a woman and you're dealing with these, you know, these women's lib issues and you're you're going that way. Whereas if you're still in high school, you're a bit more innocent. And that even if you are like, because there's equally like the women depicted in Black Christmas, we can see where John Carpenter applied levels of them to the women in Halloween. But those are yeah. high schoolers. And right, right. even though you have, you know, the girl's going to have sex and then like the kind of like the rule breaker best friend. And then you have Lori, who is technically the, the just, though she's even more so a, a, a innocent because like whereas Jess, we learn, had sex and got pregnant. Right. Uh, Lori is, is virginal by all extreme measures of that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. In, a, in a weird sense, it's like John Carpenter, though doing a great job with Halloween, like Halloween's a masterpiece, I think he kind of reset a little bit of mm-hmm. taking those rules and being like, but what if it's this way a little bit more? That you feel a little bit more for the characters because they're younger or they're intended to be younger. Versus more innocent, yeah. Too. Versus technically adults for college right. kids. I thought it was interesting that uh, Claire, the first girl who dies, mm-hmm. is painted as the virginal, sort of very innocent one mm-hmm. of the group. You know, I don't know. I don't know how much of a trope that was at that point. That that yeah. the sort of virginal one is the hero and survives and whatever, but these women are quote-unquote sort of bad girls, but they still deserve <laughs> to be taken seriously. Yeah, and not, be, their, and not know, be murdered. Complaints yeah. to the police, yeah. right. <laughs> Listen to, yeah. And you, could, you just see the disdain in people's eyes watching them, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie, and you're like, you know, we got to get in the corner of these yeah. <laughs> of these uh, wild women. Well, it's funny, too, looking back at the, the, you know, the abortion subplot, which is, you know, still minor, but then very major just for the time. Uh, there's a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws by a great um, writer named Carol Clover, who she really dives into slasher movies as just the role of gender and all these things. And it can get real heady, I will say that. But in getting heady, it also opens up this level of understanding that horror movies are so much more than what they're generally intended for, which is a quick cash grab and and all that stuff, for the most part. But you got to look back at Black Christmas as not trying to be a cash grab. It was Bob Clark being like, "I've, I've written a story that's really spooky. And he'd done a couple of horror movies before that, uh, he was always kind of working on the on the exploitation kind of horror side because it was just easy to fall into that in the 60s and early 70s. Like, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things is like one of his, his first ones. And oh, there's a really great um, film called Death Dream that he did that's a, a kind of uh, comment on Vietnam using the zombies. Um, that's really great for 1974 as well, the same year Black Christmas came out. Um, but this book that, that Carol Clover wrote goes into a little bit, and I remember being in a film gender studies class in college where we brought up slasher movies and Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and our teacher was very active in talking about how in Halloween they would never bring up abortion, but that the symbols used in Halloween from, uh, and especially around Lori, 
in her uh, fight against Michael Myers is, you know, she attacks him with a knitting needle and mm-hmm. she unspools a, a hanger to poke him in mm-hmm. the eye. And that mm-hmm. both of those items were items that were used to to do abortions, like back alley abortions. Um, and that the notion of using those symbols was very much like a quiet comment on male aggression, abortion, and all those things. And I was like, well, that's all fine and dandy to be quiet about it, but Black Christmas just straight up said it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like, don't, don't trust truly... any men, and, uh, and, women, <laughs> right. and women have the right to figure things out for and themselves. I feel like we keep saying this, but believe women in horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, did you guys... It truly does feel like um, kind of bold. And like I'm trying to think if, if today in a horror movie, the, they would have the main character who you're supposed to be rooting for say, I'm getting an abortion and I'm not marrying you. <laughs> like, I don't, yeah. I don't think it would happen. How Christmas was this Christmas movie? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it was just the right amount. Like, right. You know, because there's really no soundtrack to this movie. There is a little bit, but it comes in only when needed. Otherwise, it's very quiet, especially when you're in the house. The soundtrack consists of the grandfather clock ticking and chiming every so often. Um, it opens on Silent Night, of you know, mm-hmm. carolers doing that, and technically closes the same way. Um, and, you know, they, they have a tree up, and everyone's in their, their sweaters and jackets, and there's some gift exchanging, and what are people doing over the holiday? But it's, it's less a traditional Christmas and more of a, like, and maybe this ties into... The women's live movement moving through it's more of the like what the fuck is christmas which obviously <laughs> right. like, like we may feel like we own that <laughs> that notion <laughs> in our generation but in the 70s there were plenty of people who were just like ah i'm going skiing <laughs> yeah you know? yeah yeah like and these were the girls that were still at school you know while yeah. all the rest of their sorority sisters and i always love that uh um oh my god why am i forgetting margot kidder's name barb barb how could you forget Barb as a name? Uh, <laughs> her bedroom, she has a wreath that has little shooter bottles, empty shooter bottles as the decorations <laughs> on the yeah. wreath. I like that there were two drunks in this movie. I feel like because yeah. usually I think like, you know, there's always like the, 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 the archetype of like sort of the one drunk woman. Right, right. <laughs> but I like that this one, they expanded it to like uh, the house mother um, yeah. and Barb. And I like that they're both a little irresponsible drunks also. Well, you know, we can just imagine that Barb was going to eventually be the husband. <laughs> like, right. that was going to be her, her direction. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that woman was so good just, like, digging in the closet for B. <laughs> B for <Yeah>. booze. <laughs> like, this movie does really well with the levity. Like, between her character and these funny little bits and some slide jokes between girls and then, you know, the cop stuff. Right. And, and mostly Barb is a big draw to to the comedy aspects. Like, she's trying to take the piss out of out of the seriousness of the holiday and of everything. And even the fact that the little girl's gone missing. She's just kind of like, eh. <laughs> I did think, I thought because of the way that, that they portrayed Barb, I thought that she was going to be the final girl. I thought she was going to be the one to make it to the end. Mm-hmm. She would have, I think a, I the she same would have thing. an about face and suddenly have to be like, I have to sober up. <laughs> 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 
and that's another thing too. Every time I've shown Black Christmas, I do often have to remind people when I when it, before it starts who haven't seen it, like this being the OG of where a lot of these elements of slasher came out of. Our minds process it as if those rules already existed when we're watching Black Christmas. Right. Like, we're already like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, like you said, every person you'd be like, oh, they're going to be the final girl. This person's going to do this. This yeah. one's going to do this. But they weren't working with that cookie cutter yet. They were, right. this was Bob Clark actually taking the tin and making the cookie cutter, you know, as best as he could. And probably, you know, not even realizing what he was doing with that film. He thought he just made a quaint little spooky <laughs> Christmas movie yeah. with some murder in it. Absolutely. Um, versus being a, the slasher that we came to. Just like Hitchcock had no intention that Psycho was going to be officially listed as the first slasher movie right. for minor elements that you know later may be applied to other films. He was just making one of his movies, one of his thrillers. Yeah, um... I also really appreciated every death in this movie as far as, you know, sort of setting the standard or, you know, helping helping to set the standard of slasher movies and, like, future deaths, just the creativity in the deaths, uh, I thought was excellent. And, I, like, death one, uh, Claire suffocating in the closet, which also is a, just a general fear in life that someone's <laughs> fucking hiding yeah. in the closet, which right. we've yeah. seen in many, many movies since then. And her um, closet terrifies me because you're like, there's like a whole other room behind it's, us. It's, it's really far <laughs> back. Yeah. And then just, and then, and then getting suffocated is like obviously scary. Uh, mm-hmm. Death two, the hook in the mouth, which I thought mm-hmm. was like, you know, in my, like, in my current modern brain, I'm like, ooh, Final Destination. Like that is, that is a <laughs> yeah. classic scary because you see it coming, you know, you yep. like, you know it the whole time. And I love when a horror movie does that when they like, show you how a person's going to die, and then they follow through. <laughs> um, and then the uh, third death with the unicorn, the glass yeah. unicorn. Yeah. Uh, suspiciously <laughs> pointy unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so gratuitous and comical in a way, right? Like Because it, it's mm-hmm. like, that's a little bit like, like getting suffocated with a bag, that's real. Getting killed with a glass unicorn seems <laughs> like... That's the, the suspense of belief. And the, the, that shot, that death is, you know that, that, that shooting that scene took a whole day because it's not just stabbing with a unicorn. It's <laughs> yeah. like, we're going to do this shot where there's going to be a central light, everything else dark. We have to get the glass of the figures. <laughs> like, there's, there's a, a, a magic that happens in that shot. Like, if you really look at it, like, they, they shoot, yeah, obviously the, the point of view of stabbing Barb and then, you know, her seeing someone on top of her. But there's, there's more to it than just that typical shot. So that was, that was like, this is going to be the centerpiece. This, <laughs> yeah. this death is going to be the, yeah. The yeah. piece de resistance of this movie. And, and, and I think when you describe it like that, I feel like it makes sense that it was Barb because I kind of felt like we were given so much of Barb's personality. And I think that, you know, we like her because she's fun and she's funny and she is like such a strong character. And I think for her mm-hmm. to get that death, like the, the like the climax death, um, makes the most sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think pointing to what you said before, too, about thinking that she might be the final girl, it's like... I, Jess wasn't the only character that was fully fleshed out and felt like a real person. Mm-hmm. 
all the girls did. Even even the even the the two minutes we spend with Claire, yeah, yeah. we're like, yeah. we're like, I get who this girl is. Totally. I know exactly yeah. this girl. And throughout the movie, like when her father comes looking for her, oh yeah, and and he's going through the room and all that stuff. We're seeing, we're painting an image of. Well, this is just a college girl who's yeah. just like figuring things out. Yeah, like, with a yeah. really conservative father, um, mm-hmm. and I think that that like further shows sort of like who she is as a person where she's like, mm. you know, still kind of young and sweet and, you know, grew up in a very conservative traditional household. But now she's like at college and she's like in a sorority yeah. and she's like, you know, edging out on her own in the world a little bit. And I think you could see so much of that. Yeah. Even though she had such little screen time, although I guess she was also in the movie the entire time. because She was just, yeah, in the <laughs> she, she was a character. She was, I that- read that, um, the actress I think was like a, a, a swimmer or something and could hold her breath for a really long time and keep her eyes open for a really long time. That's amazing. So she was like, having my head in a bag was no problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this movie, yeah, it's it's very special to me. I always, too, look, I, I love Bob Clark. Like, he's, the, the movies I mentioned before, um, which you guys should check out, over time because they are actually really good um i mean we bridge this right over to a christmas story which was a few years later but also a dark movie like yes a christmas he- story <laughs> gets a reputation for being like the family fun film that everyone loves from our youth when i uh because i i didn't see it growing up i think i saw it for the first time in college and i was like this is a christmas <laughs> story this is the movie that everyone is watching with their parents at christmas yeah. <laughs> <It's> like what <laughs> But then we have to look at, too, right after Christmas Story, he directed Porky. So, I mean, <laughs> he was just a director. What who, a talent. Yeah, That's a he fucking worked, range. Yeah. Yes. He, actually, the same, the year before Christmas Story, he directed Porky's. But um, he just he just did genre. Like, he just understood how to how to navigate through genre. Does and he, he hate directed, Christmas? Maybe. That's a good question. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, those are the only two Christmas movies in his list. He eventually directed Baby Geniuses, if you guys know that movie. But, oh, uh, <laughs> the best. <laughs> but um, his ability to create these kind of like weird bookends for Christmas, um, I'm very appreciative of because it gives great fodder for programming double features as well. Uh, <laughs> you have to watch I a Christmas Black story Christmas. first and then Black Christmas. <laughs> I truly, after watching the movie, I was like, I think this could be my Christmas movie. Like, I'll watch... <laughs> Every year, I'll come back and I'll watch Elf and I'll watch <laughs> Black Christmas. <laughs> All right, should we award Black Christmas some badges? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, my first badge is <laughs> the, I want to give the um, No Tits, Only Dicks badge uh, <laughs> for the fact that there was Zero nudity in the movie, which, you know, as, mm-hmm. a, as a later trope of other slasher films is something is so easy to fall into, especially when you're making a movie about a sorority. I think that it was nice that that sort of wasn't used in any kind of way, but that there was a really excellent dick joke uh, when Barb is in the, in the station <laughs> talking to the yep. deputy yes. um, who doesn't know what fellatio is. And yes. when she spells it out for him... <laughs> That was so beautiful. So I, I will take. I literally. Yeah. Yeah. I have the. Uh, I have the spelling bee badge. For it. 
<laughs> to award exactly to that scene. And that, that cop, I think his character's name was Nash, was just like the most Canadian part of the movie. And, and Barb drinking a beer the whole time in the police station. Just the police station. Good. So bad. Yeah. I also want to give the uh, you only had one job badge to the deputy who was supposed to like call Jess and quietly get her to leave the house <laughs> and like not blow the, not blow the cover and but he just fucked that up so hard <laughs> like it's not like she went off the rails where he was like no. I can't with this woman she like said like one thing like wait but I gotta go get my friends or whatever and he could have been like yeah. no literally you have to listen to me he was just like oh I give up on you women <laughs> totally Get out of the house. The killer's in the house. Come on. <laughs> I'd like to give two. Okay. Uh, a legacy badge to this film for setting the groundwork for the very genre that this podcast is based on uh, and love with and, and creating a conversation about, like, maybe we should go back to, like, look back at Black Christmas and say, maybe show more, don't tell more. Uh you know all yeah. this, all these various elements. Be quiet. Don't be so loud. Don't be so quick to jump to this. Uh, and and setting these these rules that, of course, were made to be broken, but that that have entertained us for freaking decades. I mean, 1974 is a it's a large sprint over um, to keep a, a genre of film going. And then I'd love to give a a, a, a best use of uh, antiquated. Uh, communication in this <laughs> film with uh, like what a thrilling scene the like trying to get the call the phone number isolated where it's like anytime they're on the phone and like, the, the phone really company guy is like racing it? through the through the <laughs> like you're just like the grid yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we still don't understand exactly. Like, even even if you were in 1974, like living, you would still be like, "Oh, that's where the phones work." You wouldn't be like, <laughs> right, oh, right. "I get what's going on here. I understand what's going on here." You'd be like, "That's fascinating." But it creates because I think they just expected that. They're like, "Isn't it wild that this is how communication is sort of told out?" Um, and you know, just I love I love a good rotary phone ring, which we never hear anymore in our modern yeah. cell phone world. Even 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 a, a cell phone, even a rotary phone ring you can get for your phone doesn't sound doesn't have that yeah. hollow roll of dread that, <laughs> that we discover. Um, so true. That we discover, especially in Black Christmas. But yeah, those are my two badges. Um, I have I have the the mouthwash badge because that killer has a nasty mouth. <laughs> but I kind of I I loved it so much. I loved like they just went balls to the wall with like horrible language in this movie, especially because while the while the women were upset by hearing it, you could tell that they weren't scandalized like that this like, like this was part of their life you know even more even more direction to like why this is like the perfect like women's lib era movie because it's just yeah. such a direct like comment even coming from a guy as a writer director to just be like yeah 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 women yeah. fucking suffer <laughs> through, through everything and women are always on edge like forget being locked in a house 
with a killer in the attic, like the world is your fucking. There's a killer in the attic all the time. Right. Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere you go, every door you open, there's a killer behind it. I also, yeah. I, I do love the line delivery in in one of the the phone calls of um, just like having a wart removed. <laughs> Keith, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this movie. Yeah, yeah thank you guys for having me. It's been a delight. Is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, the Heels Have Eyes is my long gestating uh, drag dragumentary um, that I started about 11, 12 years ago. Um, capturing the drag scene, the burgeoning drag scene here in Denver, Colorado, um, right as RuPaul's Drag Race started. So this is not like a response to RuPaul's Drag Race. This is just a response to actual talent that I was witnessing here. But over the over the years, got to capture this drag scene explode, partly due to RuPaul's Drag Race all over the place. But through interviews of all the participants here in Denver, really getting a good grasp on the past, present, and future of drag in the world um, and what it means to people. Um, so, yeah, I'm in a, a downslope period on it right now. There's still a couple of interviews to capture. Um, but, of course, no money to finish that. Uh, and we'll, we'll figure that out eventually once we get out of this uh, pandemic. Yeah, I hope to share it with, with everyone um, sooner rather than later. Uh, where can we find you on the Internet? Yeah. Uh, I am available uh, for parties and bat mitzvahs. At, uh, <laughs> uh, Just on, as a guest. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Constant Watcher is my handle. Um, and uh, you can find me at the C Film Center. And in the meantime, uh, you can get all your film needs needs met uh, via our virtual cinema platform at denverfilm.org, where I program roughly about uh, four films a week uh, for a bigger cachet of probably about 30 titles. Um, and around this time, look, be on the lookout for um, some great special programming that's coming up um, as we expand our reach on the virtual platform. Um, I have a partner in crime, Teresa Mercado, who has this uh, program called Scream Screen uh, that is all horror. And we're going to try to do a virtual Scream Screen, I believe, this month, um, if not in January. And should be really cool. But, um, but yeah, that's, right. that's where you can find me and kill me. <laughs> well, thank you. Please don't Amazing. do that second part. But... <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Keith. It was a pleasure having you. It was a scream yes. having you. It was a holiday <laughs> treat talking to you two. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy end of pandemic. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> happy vaccine. Happy vaccination day. <laughs> Bunk 237, a horror movie podcast, stars Suyette Wen and Robin Zlotnick as the final girls of Bunk 237, and Chris Charpentier as camp director Chris. The show is produced by me, Shane Segretti. Our theme song is written and performed by Dan Zlotnick, and our outro music is written and performed by Talene Kali. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and it may be featured on an upcoming episode. Have a suggestion for a movie? 
then follow us on Instagram at bunk237pod and Twitter at bunk237. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are downloaded.